Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know about a new audio project from Theopolis. This project is called the Theopolis Blogcast, and it's audio readings of our blog articles. You can find it by searching for Theopolis Blogcast in any of your podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and more. There's also a link to the blogcast down there in the show notes. We've already got a few articles up there on Lent, as well as Liturgical Man and Liturgical Woman by James Jordan. And new episodes will be added every week. We hope you enjoy it. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the genealogies of Scripture. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts are going to be discussing the genealogy found in 1 Chronicles 6, the genealogy of Levi. Do check out the show notes for links mentioned in this episode, as well as a link to our YouTube page where we publish weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing 1 Chronicles 6. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as always, is in the background making sure the recording is taking and that it gets edited and delivered to you, our listening audience. We're in the middle of a series of studies in the genealogies of the Bible. Uh, We have looked at the genealogies in the book of Genesis over several weeks, and we made a quick stop in Exodus 6 to look at the genealogy of Aaron and Moses that's recorded there. And uh, the last couple of episodes, we've been looking at the genealogy uh, that opens the book of Chronicles. And uh, as many of you will know, the uh, book of Chronicles begins with nine solid chapters of genealogy. There are other sorts of things that are mixed in with the genealogy, but primarily it's a list of names and relations among uh, different people, focusing, of course, on the descendants of Abraham and specifically the descendants of Jacob uh, and the tribes of Israel. Uh, And we're going to continue that study today, uh, looking at uh, uh, further chapters in 1 Chronicles. But before we start that, I wanted to raise a question that came from a listener. Uh, David Chu wrote in and was wondering if we were going to touch on the differences uh, in genealogy and chronology between the Septuagint and uh, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Masoretic text, which is the uh, standard Hebrew uh, edition of the Old Testament. And those Uh, genealogies and chronologies differ in some places. Mr. Chu refers specifically to articles by Jeremy Sexton, who is a friend of Theopolis. He's published a number of articles on chronology and uh, the genealogies of the Bible, particularly with a focus on the chronologies, but um, he's uh, published these in Westminster Theological Journal and in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, I believe. Brian will get those uh, references in the show notes so that you can look those up. Uh, But uh, Mr. Chu was referring to those articles and raised the question about the relationship between the Septuagint and the Masoretic genealogies and chronologies. Uh, And uh, as we discussed this prior to to this episode, James had some comments and thoughts on the Septuagint and the the way the Septuagint presents the chronology of Israel. So, um, James, can can you summarize the thoughts that you had on that topic? Sure. I mean, I understand that Jeremy Sexton has written particularly about the 
chronological details in Genesis, which I haven't studied myself. I have spent a fair bit of time in Kings and Chronicles looking at the um, the regnal years there. And it seems to me that in terms of how long kings reign and when they start to reign and so forth, that where Greek translations of the Old Testament differ from the Hebrew text as best we can uh, reconstruct it, so the, the Masoretic text, they almost always differ in a way that, that makes the text easy to read, that brings it into harmony with other aspects of the text. So one example of that would be um, Jehoiachin's reign, which we might touch on when we get to Jesus' chronology in uh, in, in Matthew, Matthew 1. Um, in two kings, Jehoiachin is said to start to reign at the age of 18, um, but two chronicles has him reign at the age of eight. That's two chronicles 36, I guess, because it's the last um, chapter. But so you have this discrepancy. Did he start to reign uh, at when he was 18 or eight? And Greek translations kind of harmonize that. So they have 18 in both um, Kings and Chronicles. And most English translations uh, follow the Greek there. But in, in the King James, for instance, you'll find the discrepancy preserved and in, in other older translations, actually. Um, but it, it seems to me that in that case, at, at least, there are a range of reasons for thinking that that reflects a co-regency, that Jehoiachin actually began to reign at the age of eight um, as a co-region, which was fairly common uh, in Israel's history, and that he acceded to the throne at the age of 18. And there are some other oddities in Jehoiachin's reign that that makes sense of. For instance, he's referred to um, as a brother um, of Mataniah's in Chronicles, but as a nephew of his in Kings. And we can get to this some other time, perhaps. But it seems to me that he received a kind of promotion. Um, he moved up a generation, similar to Ephraim and Manasseh in some senses, and they, they were moved up um, parallel to the rest of Jacob's sons and um that that's kind of one of a few examples i found where the greek text has a, an easier and apparently harmonized reading um you touched on one um a few weeks back peter in exodus uh exodus 12 where the 430 year sojourn in egypt is referred to and um uh the Septuagint makes that slightly easier. It f refers to 430 years in Egypt and in Canaan. And um, actually, there's a, um, a Samaritan Pentateuch as well, which sort of adds, adds a further detail. It says that um, uh, Israel and his fathers were in Egypt and, and in Canaan. So they're, they're, I guess, kind of a long story short, there, there seems to be this systematic simplification, which are a number of other people have noted in the Greek details, which lends me to sort of be uh, be more confident of the Hebrew text, at, at least in Kings and Chronicles. Yeah, so that the, that um, interpretation of Exodus twelve might, in fact, be correct. That the four hundred thirty years—that's uh, the way Paul takes the four hundred years—starts with Abraham and not with the entry into Egypt. So it's possible that that's correct, but you're saying that that the Hebrew text leaves this difficulty that 
the Septuagint is resolving. Uh, we also talked before we started the recording that uh, one of the arguments that people make for the for preferring the Septuagint is that it's the Bible of the of the apostles and of the early church, and that the apostles were citing the Septuagint when they were quoting the Old Testament. And James, you raised some some skepticism about that conclusion. You, you're you're not sure that the 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 apostles are citing the Septuagint when they cite scripture. I'm not convinced about that. No, I mean, I, I'm not convinced that. Um, so, in particular, with the chronology, um, I think that um, in the Septuagint, I'm not sure that the Exodus 12 reading is necessarily. So, it's consistent with with Paul's, but I think there are other ways of um, uh, of making the two cohere. Um, the the Promises, I think, plausibly in um, Galatians three, could be seen as um, promises which were made to the patriarchs generally, to Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. So, I don't think it would. Yeah, I, I think that there are kind of ways of, of making those things add up without going to the Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and your your thought was that the the New Testament writers are actually engaging more directly with the Hebrew texts. And the Greek versions that they cite are not not necessarily any existing translation at all, but they might follow the Septuagint in certain respects, but not in others. But they're really arising out of the apostles' engagement with the with the text uh, the text in Hebrew. Yeah, I, I think so. I'd, I'd have to sort of um, uh, get back to you with sort of specific examples, but yeah, I think there's a. a, a Good bit to be said for that. That that um, rather than going to Greek translations, the, the points made in the New Testament can be sustained just by very careful reading of the Masoretic Masoretic text. Well, thank you, thank you, James. Uh, we're going to uh, move on to the the topic of the podcast for this week, which is First Chronicles six. Uh, as I suggested at the beginning of our studies in First Chronicles, uh, this is the chapter that's at the center of the somewhat chiastically structured outline of the the genealogies. And it's the genealogical table for the Levites, which includes the priests uh, in the in the line of Aaron. And um, several episodes ago I talked about the a kind of pictorial structure that's going on in the early chapters of Chronicles, where you have the first couple of chapter the first chapter rather is covering uh, the genealogy of the human race from Adam. Uh, up through the actually the the kings and chiefs of Edom, uh, but then you begin the sons of Jacob in chapter two, and that begins with Judah. So the royal tribe begins the genealogies, as we'll see next time. The genealogies end with this accent with an accent on Benjamin, which is the original royal tribe, the tribe of Saul, and so the the genealogies are surrounded and framed by genealogies of the royal tribes, and right at the center of the uh, genealogies is the priestly tribe. So I think that there's a kind of picture, I think, of an ideal Israelite order. This is what Israelite should Israel should look like in the land with the kings protecting and extending the boundaries of Israel to their promised extension. Uh, but that activity of war and conquest and protection and judgment that the kings engage in, that's all for the sake of preserving what's going on in the temple, preserving the work of the Levites and the priests. And I think, in particular, we can say that the uh, the center of the center of the genealogies is the uh, list of Levitical singers and their descendants, 
that's in chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. As I see chapter 6, it has a roughly chiastic structure. Well, it actually has two, two sections, one section that's genealogical, and then the other section that's a list of the Levitical and priestly cities. But the genealogical section has a, has a chiastic structure that begins and ends with Aaron. Then it has a general genealogy of the Levites, and that uh, is matched in verse 48 with a statement about uh, the Levites generally serving in the tabernacle. And then at the center from verses 31 to 47 is the genealogy of the Levitical singers. So if you want to picture the, again, you've got a pictorial uh, display of the ideal order of Israel. You have the kings who are ruling and governing the land outside. You have the Levites and priests who are maintaining the house. And at the center of the work of the temple and the center of the work of priesthood is the work of the uh, Levitical singers who are initially singing at the ark tent that David erects in Jerusalem, and then eventually that's incorporated into the temple worship in the reign of Solomon. I think that fits with the way that uh, Chronicles in general depicts the centrality of musical worship in the temple worship. Obviously, there's still sacrifices going on in those in the temple, in Solomon's temple, but uh, what's elevated and highlighted, I think, even more than those offerings is the offering of praise that the that Levites bring. That centrality, I guess, is arguably reflected in the um, whole list of the cities dispersed throughout the various tribal territories. There's a sense there, I guess, geographically that the uh, priests, the Levites and, and so forth are um, dispersed throughout Israel. They're a kind of Israel within Israel and, and therefore are seen as, as central to the whole nation. Mm. That's one of the places, the, the list of cities is one of the places in uh, this chapter where you have the different clans of the Levites that are uh, arranged in, um, the, the lists of descendants are arranged in a particular order according to the, the clans of the Levites, uh, the Gershomites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites. They're identified already uh, in uh, numbers, they're highlighted in numbers as clans of Levites that have different responsibilities in the tabernacle. And those three uh, sons of Levi, as heads of different Levitical clans, that triad becomes the organizing principle through a lot of the chapter, including the latter section where it goes into the list of cities. So you have you have cities that are cities for priests, but then you have Levitical cities that are designated for particular sub-tribes of Levi. And those cities are, it gives you, a, as you said, the centrality of the Levitical, Levitical service in the land in general, but it also practically gives you an idea of how Israelites were ministered to and taught and how they went about uh, serving the Lord and seeking the Lord on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Uh, Sometimes we have this uh, impossible idea that everyone gathered every week at the temple, so it would have been impossible given the distances and the, the speed of transportation at the time. So there's extra things going on at the temple, but not everybody in Israel goes to the temple every Sunday, every Sabbath rather, but they do have holy convocations that seem to be scattered around the land. And at least some of the holy convocations uh, presumably are taking place in these Levitical cities. I think you also have probably have the development of kind of a, a scribal culture in these Levitical cities. You have a concentration of specialists in the law that are uh, living in these cities that make them, uh, you know, if we want to think of an analogy in the modern world, there'd be kind of university towns that are scattered throughout the land. So no one in Israel is ever far from 
an expert in Torah, if he wants to consult about consult about something or you know send his kids to Hebrew school, there are specialists in the law that are available to do that. There are occasional references in Deuteronomy to the Levite within your gates, I think, and that seems to suggest a similar thing that it was standard just to have a a Levite somewhere who you could consult. The Levites within Israel could maybe be seen as the root of a more diaspora principle that is later on the case for Israel as a whole. Yes, so yeah, Simeon, Simeon and Levi are scattered around the land because of their uh, their sin at the city of Shechem, but that's turned into a blessing for Israel, and they they become the the scattered people as Israel as a whole becomes the scattered priestly people during the exile. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, James, that the, the the fact that there are Levites in the gates that seems to be Levites within cities that are not Levitical cities. Uh, sure. So there, yeah. Uh, there be yeah. So be local. There be local specialists in Torah that are all over the land. So not only do you have these kind of uh, these places of concentrated Torah study and Levitical activity uh, in the Levitical cities, but then you also have uh, individuals or collections, small collections of Levites that are within the towns and villages throughout the countryside. So again, you have we shouldn't operate on the idea that everything is concentrated in a centralized a centralized location at the temple. That obviously is the center of the whole system. But uh, there's a lot of priestly and Levitical activity going on all over the land. The whole idea of having a tribe set apart for priestly service in distinction from the other tribes maybe um, challenges some of our notions of how a society should be ordered, a meritocratic, egalitarian society. But I often wonder about the ordering of Israel according to tribes, not least because the nation that they took over, Canaan, was filled with a great many people. No one people could dominate that land, seemingly because presumably because of the difference in geographical terrain and other things like that. So you almost needed a number of distinct groups to occupy it. But to have a unified national identity with a number of distinct groups, the tribal identity of Israel, I think the tribal divisions of Israel allowed for that sort of thing to occur. And having a tribe that scattered throughout and also a leading tribe in Judah allowed for them to occupy a land that maybe another group that was ordered differently, that didn't have a same sense of a brotherhood of a number of different tribes, they would not have been able to occupy the land in the same way. So I wonder whether Israel's brotherhood and tribal distinction, both of those things, are an important part of how God is establishing them within that particular location, and that the geography and the ordering of the people are both essential for having a sense of commonality, but also the diversity of different people groups within different parts of the mm. land, different sorts of activities within the land as well. Mm. Yeah, and that's that. Uh, um, a decentralization is important to remember in in historical terms. In, in the Book of Judges, for example, where Judges, if you, uh, as James Jordan has made this point, uh, judges are seem to be operating in different parts of the land at the same time. We think of uh, Gideon or uh, Barak as being uh, leaders of all of Israel, but sometimes it's a it's a more localized leadership and a more localized conflict that they're engaged in, uh, and you can have these different different tribes. So in in that kind of situation, as you say, there's there's no political, there's no overarching political system. There isn't one until you get the monarchy, and then you have a you have a capital city and a and a reorganization of the administration of the kingdom. 
but uh, during the during the uh, Amphictyony, as it's called, uh, period of the judges, when you have this tribal structure, it's much more decentralized. Yes, it seems significant that that whole distribution of um, Levites throughout the tribes and in their cities comes right on, on the back of um, in verses. Uh, so, sorry, chapter six, verses forty-nine through to um, well, at least fifteen and onwards. That sort of central summary of the function of Aaron and his line to make atonement um, for Israel, according to what Moses has done. It, it kind of, for me, at least, underlines that idea of the Levites as this glue or, or preservative, which kind of keeps Israel from exile, if you like, in. Um, uh, Leviticus 26, at least, it, it seems as if the, the the sort of atonement is what keeps exile from happening, and exile is kind of the last resort for cleansing the land. Basically, that um, once all other options have failed, Israel herself has to be um, sent out in a almost scapegoat-like fashion, and um, it seems significant that. Verse forty nine sort of centrally um, um, underlines that function of Aaron and his line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you're no doubt intentionally making a uh, uh, making a Hebrew pun by talking about Levi as a as a glue. That's the that's the etymology yeah. that at least that's the etymology that's offered in Genesis for his name uh, by Leah. Now, now my husband will be attached to me. Uh, so yeah, it's the it's the mediating and combining tribe that uh, that keeps Israel as one body. And I think that again, I, I want to return to the the point I made about music being at the center of this. If you if you think about the uh, think about the Levitical vocation in the way that you've just described, James, that it's a they're called to maintain a unity within this diverse tribal structure. At least in Chronicles, a central part of that glue is uh, the the work that they do in song uh, at the at the tabernacle of David uh, that's des- that's described explicitly in verses 31 and 32 uh, it's David appointed them over the service of song in the house of Yahweh after the ark rested there they ministered with song before the tabernacle the tent of meeting that's not the mosaic tabernacle but that's the that's the tent that David set up in Jerusalem and then that was there until Solomon built the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and then they moved the choir and uh, musicians into the into the temple system. The singers are a kind of Levitical tribe within a Levitical tribe. Uh, I mentioned the triadic, the three clans of the tribe of Levi, and those are all reflected in the in the lead singers. Uh, each of the lead singers is from one of the leading tribes or one of the subtribes of Levi. So you have uh, from the Kohathites is Heman the singer. That's in verse thirty-three. Uh, Asaph uh, is uh, the other one, and then Ethan is the other one from the tribe of Merari. And so you have those same those same three subclans now specified uh, within those three subclans. You have a further specification of three subclans of singers. So the you have these um, kind of uh, microscopic relationships. The the tribe that is gluing Israel together is Levi, and then the tribe within the tribe of Levi that's gluing things together is the choir. It's maybe notable that as the tribe that's gluing Israel together, 
it depends upon the hospitality of all the other tribes. Mm. The tribe of Levi is particularly has a particular affinity with the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. These people who would be seen as outsiders and depend upon the hospitality of Israel. But yet the the tribe of Levi itself that provides that core function of Israel's identity as a kingdom of priests depends upon that same hospitality and provides hospitality for the refuge the refuge within the cities of refuge um, mm. for the manslayer and others like that 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 principle should lie at the very heart of Israel's identity I think is significant given Israel's history that it had a history of depending upon the hospitality of others yeah mm. and um, the sort of horrific um text of sort of judges um towards the end of judges 19 through to 21 um is a picture i guess of that gone awfully wrong when the the levite expects hospitality in um gibeah and yeah bad things follow i believe we've raised this issue before uh, uh about the kind of the direction of the genealogies predominantly the genealogies move from move chronologically so you have a list of in verse three for example of chapter six you have aaron the nadab abihu eliezer and ithamar are his sons verse four says eliezer became the father phineas phineas became the father abishua and then so on and you're moving from father to son to son to son to son it's interesting that uh, the place where that reverses in this chapter we, we did mention before that it's it's in this chapter the chapter about the levites that it reverses and starts doing the genealogy backwards to the forefather. And the place where that happens is in the list of the singers. So if you look at verse uh, 33, it starts with the sons of Kohathites from the sons of the Kohathites were Heman the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. So it's moving backward all the way to Israel in verse 38, uh, who is the father of Levi. So to get the, to get the father son genealogy, you have to move from verse 38 to verse 33. Uh, the same thing happens with the others in the, Verses uh, 39 to 43, we have a, a genealogy uh, moving backward in time to Levi. The same thing happens in verses 44 to 47 with the uh, the Mararites. Ethan, the singer from among the Mararites, uh, his uh, ancestry is traced back to Levi. So there's a there's something interesting going on with specifically with the singers, not not just not with the Levites in general but specifically with the singers where the genealogy moves backward. And I think we, we mentioned this at the time we brought this up, that uh, there's a at least a parallel in structure when we look at the two gene- genealogies of Jesus. Matthew moves from Abraham on up to Jesus, and Luke in Luke 3 moves from Jesus and then traces that lineage backwards to ultimately to, to uh, Adam, the son of God. I don't remember now if we had any blazing insights into the rationale for that <laughs> for that rearrangement of the uh of the genealogies but maybe you have one now i don't <laughs> i i don't know if i would call it blazing but um, I, I i mentioned that in luke um that that whole genealogy is um uh prefixed by the fact that um jesus began to be 30 and that that would seem to um emphasize a priestly ministry um now that's not specifically mm-hmm. to do with singers um but th- there may be that sense there mm-hmm. right we kn- we mentioned um when we tackled exodus 6 that there was the um that that was the 
foundation, really, of the Levitical order and the house of Aaron, um, rather than going through all 12 sons in Exodus 6, it, uh, or 12 tribes, it really drills down in detail um, in Levi and, and then stops at that point, never goes on to uh, complete sort of sons uh, five onwards, I think it would be. And um, that um, genealogy there, we, we noted the prominence of the number 26, um, which may be taken up in chapter 6 here. So the initial list, the sons of Levi, that begins at verse 1 down to verse 15, that covers exactly 26 generations. So from Levi down to Jehozadak, who goes into exile, is a 26-generation span. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily complete, um, if a lot of that is charting out the offices of the high priest, then I guess it's possible that someone could uh, be succeeded by his grandson in the office of high priest, for instance. Mm. But uh, it strikes me as interesting numerically anyway. Right, right. Yeah, and we've we've noted that in, in other in other contexts that the 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 numerology of these different genealogies when you when you have a list my my rule of thumb is when you find a list in the bible you start counting among other things you want to you want to find out what's actually in the list but one of the things you want to find out is how many there are of them yeah do do you think it's significant that that this particular um line ends in exile in terms of i guess i've just been trying to think about the um the span and shape of of the whole book uh, it seems to that Israel is laid out in in its sort of segmented by tribe at the start, which sounds very much like a um, uh, Joshua's allotment of, of the land and, and so forth. And then at the end of the book, um, Cyrus uh, returns the people to their land. And I wonder if the whole thing is meant to um, sum up this sort of enforced jubilee, if you, if you like, before there's a, there's a new birth and a new event in Israel. So the tribes are set out initially, and then the enforced jubilee and return to the land would be Cyrus's. And if that's right, there would be a kind of parallel of that in the New Testament, where, again, there is this sort of dispersed and disordered situation, and then through um, a Roman um, decree through the emperor uh, for the purpose of taxation, people to return to their home town, and, and it could be seen as, a, I guess, another sort of in, in enforced jubilee moment before Jesus is born. That fits with what um, we talked about in uh, looking at the genealogy of Judah, where you have these several lines of Judah that uh, come to an uh, they stall out. Uh, somebody who doesn't have any sons, the Lord kills the sons of Judah. And so he has to Tamar has to restart in, uh, through a different through different means, as it were. Uh, and you have that you have that you have the the ending that's overcome. That's uh, a regular theme in the genealogy of Judah, and I think that's runs throughout the genealogies. The chapter before the one we're looking at ends with a reference to the to the exile, also with uh, Israel acting treacher, treacherously against the God of their fathers. That is that they're committing a sacrilege. And he destroys them. He sends in Tiglath-Pilneser, the king of the Assyrians. He's specifically talking about the sons of Reuben and the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh at that point. Uh, but you have that ending to the previous chapter, and then you have the sons of Levi that are listed. So there's a, there's a catastrophe, a, a sense of an ending 
but then the genealogy still continues with the tribes, uh, James, as you said, that uh, the tribe that is responsible for making atonement and for doing all the things that are necessary to prevent exile and to keep Israel in the land. Uh, and I think you're going to find that, I think, in the final chapters in our next episode, uh, that again, we have this theme of the Lord triumphing over death, the Lord triumphing over exile. He does it for Judah. He does it for Israel as a whole. He's going to do it for the people again. Uh, that's going to be reflected again in uh, chapters eight and nine. And uh, that's, a, that's a recurring theme throughout the throughout the genealogies that's obviously anticipating the direction of the whole book with the judgment of exile and the eventual return and their resurrection from the grave of exile. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.